Well, we are continuing through our uh, study of the book of Mark, and we've come to this passage that Tim just read, and it, to me, is one of the most gripping sort of, yeah, I can picture myself in that situation, passages in all the gospel. In fact, it's come to be one of my favorite passages in the gospels. And I invite you to go ahead and turn there, if you haven't already. We're in Mark chapter 4. We're going to be picking it up in verse 35. And as you're turning there, let me just set this up. Uh, by telling you about what I, comes to my mind when I think of the idea of trust. Because surely this passage is about fear, it's about faith, it's about trust. And when I think of trust, I think of one of my favorite restaurants. Now, and that sounds a little bit funny. How would I get trust from a restaurant? Well, when we lived in Johnson City, Tennessee, which is where we were for a couple years before we moved to Franklin. By the way, Johnson City, not known for its great restaurants, Right. Uh, no question, Franklin Brentwood, Middle Tennessee has it beat by far, but there's one restaurant that I really miss, and it's called Scratch Brick Oven. It's a pizza place. Now, it doesn't look like much from the outside. In fact, we've got a photo we'll put up here uh, on the screens for you. This is Scratch, all right? So it's an, an old kind of dilapidated house. In fact, our, our guy running the slides in the back, he called it a shack about there earlier. I almost took uh, exception to that, but I said, actually, no, it kind of is a shack. Now, uh, you can kind of get a flavor for this restaurant by looking at the sign. It says, this is a pizza place, keep it in mind. And the sign says, now serving sandwiches, sandwiches, all right? So they have a little bit of an attitude at this restaurant. In fact, if you go on their website, this is the way that they describe themselves. Scratch is a postmodern mom, pop, and standard issue store kid business. I have no clue what that actually means. <laughs> then it goes on saying, featuring components of bakery, smokehouse, charcuterie, forged into a wood-fired pizzeria. And at the top of the website, the biggest font of the entire homepage of this website are these three words, not for everyone. <laughs> what a marketing ploy. It's like, come on in, not for everyone. Like, this is what they're going for. Now, what I really like about this restaurant is when you go in, you have three choices for your pizza. And I don't mean three toppings. In fact, they've got tons of toppings. I'll read you some of their unusual toppings in a minute. But you've got three options of how you want your pizza. You can build your own, which is what we're usually accustomed to, right? So we pick what we want on our pizza. That's, that's what we want to do. That's what we like to do. That's what every other pizza restaurant does. But they have another option, and it's called... The trust pizza. And what they're saying is, you let us make a pizza. We'll, we'll, we'll get some of these ingredients. We know that they work well together. and We'll give you a pizza. You just trust us. Now, I was tempted to do that until I read the ingredients. Now, listen to some of the ingredients they have in addition to the normal pepperoni sauces, this kind of thing. They have chimichurri pesto sauce, green curry sauce, capicola, cranberry turkey sausage, artichoke hearts, fresh banana peppers, Granny Smith apples, mandarin oranges, hot cherry peppers, and I could keep going on and on. And I didn't even know what a couple of those things were, and others of them were vegetables. And so I thought, I can't have that. <laughs> so I said, I'm going to build my own. And so I, you know, I chose my normal, and honestly, it was fine. Like, it was good, maybe a little better than average. And I found myself back in the restaurant a few weeks later. I was with a guy from our church on a, on a business lunch, and he said, you got to do the trust pizza. I said, I, I can't. And he goes, well, they do have a third option. He said, they have what they call the limited trust pizza. <laughs> this is true. And so he said, the way this works is you tell them what you don't want. So you literally, literally take the, the menu and you scratch off what you don't want, and then they'll make you a great pizza from what's left over. So I said, that's me. So I scratched off anything that I didn't know, and anything that I knew was a vegetable, it went off. <laughs> and so I got a pizza back, and it was very similar to the pizza I'd ordered the first time. I mean, a couple other things. It was better. It was good. I mean, I liked it. I, I would go back for sure. 
So maybe two or three or four times later, I, I finally got up the courage. Now, I got to tell you one more thing. The guy that was making these pizzas looked like he was straight out of like 1969. I mean, he had tattoos all over him. Not, nothing wrong with tattoos, by the way. Not judging. Like hair, like really, really long. Looked like he hadn't showered in three or four days. Like he kind of had that really groovy hippie vibe going on. And that's just kind of not me. Like I don't judge it, but it's just not who I am. And so it took me a while to build up enough trust of this guy that he was going to be able to make me a pizza that I would fall in love with. And finally he did. Finally, I just said, all right, go for it. Full trust. Waited 15 minutes, got my pizza back, opened it up, you know, and I said, this doesn't even look like a pizza. Where did all these colors come from on the pizza? But you know what, though? I took a bite, and I thought, this is one of the best pizzas I've ever had. Like, no kidding. Like, it was new flavors, flavor combinations I'd never tasted before. And the more I ate, the more I was like, this is, this is like taking me to another level of pizza enjoyment. Now, that became the restaurant when we had guests from out of town that we would take them to. And it was like, well, don't worry what the menu says. Just order the trust pizza. And this is what we kept getting. Now, here's what I was thinking about as I thought about this story related to this passage. Most of us live our lives somewhere between build your own relationship to God and limited trust to God. Very few of us open our hands and say, full trust. Take all the ingredients at your disposal, God. Blessing, hardship, struggle and you mix them together because I trust you to give me this experience that you know is what I need for my growth and my joy we don't interact with God that way no God you can have this part of me you can have that part of me you can't touch my kids you can't touch my dreams for the future you can't touch that place in me and please don't let that other thing come in my life anything but that now, this is real for me. This is real for us. This is part of what it means to be a human being living on this side of eternity. Uh, Larry Kayser, who was here teaching last week, talked about the idea of, you know, we live between the two trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and, you know, Genesis chapter 3, and the tree of life in, in Revelation 22, and we lived in this in-between time, and what Jesus has been teaching his disciples through these parables about the kingdom is what it looks like to trust me, even amidst a storm. That's what the kingdom is all about. So I want to jump back in this morning and kind of let me just walk you through where we're going to go in the rest of this message. What stood out to me as I studied this passage and the deeper I, I dug into this, I realized the questions in this text are, are what give this text such power. There are four questions in the text. Two of them are kind of combined together. So there's really three questions that I want to drill down into. There's a question for you. There's a question for me. In fact, there's, I think there's three that we need to work through. And here's how we're going we're gonna to give you some context and background at the beginning. And then we're going to talk about the first question of the text, which is what the disciples are asking God, asking Jesus in this case. And I think it's the same question that you and I need to ask God. It's this question, do you care? Do you care? The second question is one that Jesus asked the disciples. I think it's a question that God would ask all of us. Why are you afraid? And the third question is a question the disciples ask one another. I think it's a question we need to ask ourselves. And it's, who is this Jesus? Really? I thought I knew who he was. But there's something else deeper, something else bigger, more profound, more life-changing. Who is this? 
So that's going to be the outline of our text, these three questions. So let me just start off with some background before we jump back in, verse 35. Now, the disciples had been with Jesus by this time a good length of time. We don't know exactly how long, maybe a year or so. They'd seen him do a lot of miracles. They'd seen him do a lot of teaching. And he just started teaching in these parables. And we talked two weeks ago about the parable of the soil and, and being soil that's ready to hear, ready to listen. And then last week, as I mentioned, Larry talked about the, you know, the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of all these other kingdoms. And there's a lot of mystery in this. And Jesus is trying to teach them something. And now he's going to teach them something out of the classroom into the lab. You remember science class in high school or college, you learn something in the classroom and then the next day it's lab day and you go in and you actually mix the chemicals and see what happens. I think this is exactly what Jesus is leading these disciples in. He knew the storm was coming. In fact, as we're about to see, it's his idea to go to the other side knowing what's going to happen. He's saying, listen, I'm going to take you away, those closest to me. I'm going to take you away from the crowds and i'm not just going to teach you with my words i'm going to teach you with this experience that you're about to experience of me they're moving from the classroom to the lab let's jump back into the text and i'll just read the first two verses and we'll talk about them verse 35 on that day so this is the same day he's been teaching all these parables when evening came he said to them meaning his disciples let us go over to the other side Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. A couple of quick comments on this. Just as he was, what does that mean? It means he was already in the boat. Remember, he'd been teaching in the boat. That goes back to uh, chapter, uh, or chapter 4, verse 1. And so he stayed in the boat. They took off just as he was. Notice there's also other boats there as well. In fact, uh, if you actually know uh, the size of these boats, in, in fact, there's an interesting story of how we know, but we're, I won't get into that for the sake of time, but this would have been about a 25-foot boat long, maybe seven and a half feet wide. So picture roughly, I, I don't know, a little bit further than I could stretch my arms out, and then from the front of the stage to the back of the stage. Not a huge boat. It wouldn't have really been able to fit all the disciples and the other followers. So there were several boats. They were small little fishing boats, and they were going across the sea. Now, let's talk for a minute about the Sea of Galilee. In fact, we've got a picture of this that I want you to see. This is the Sea of Galilee. It's actually a lake. You know, technically, it is a freshwater lake. It's called the Sea of Galilee in Scripture and in other places. Now, we're looking from this point of view. We're looking from the west coast across to the east coast. You're looking west to east. This would have been the same direction that they would have been traveling from Capernaum region over to the other side, which is the region of the Gentiles. In fact, next week, Michael will be here, and we'll be talking about that passage where Jesus casts the demons out and puts them in the swine, into the pigs, and they rush off the cliff. You see those cliffs on the other side? <laughs> That's where that was. I mean, it was just somewhere right over there where that, you're going to hear that, hear that next week. Now, this is the lake. This is the Sea of Galilee. The reason I wanted to show you this, number one, you can just sort of picture this in your head. Number two, you need to get an idea of scope. It doesn't look very far. It's eight miles in a little fishing boat where they're just rowing or maybe a little sail if the wind was blowing just right. It would have taken them a long time. So if they left in the evening, they were not expecting to get across until sometime either in the dead of night or possibly in the morning. This was going to be quite a journey, and it was risky. Leave this slide up for a couple more minutes. What we know about this region even today is storms can come out of nowhere. And the reason for that is that the Sea of Galilee is down about 700 feet below sea level. It's kind of in this, this um, 
trough, right? And about 30 miles to the northeast is Mount Hermon, which is about 9,000 feet above sea level. So you have a difference of 10,000 feet in just 30,000 miles, and you're surrounded by hills and mountains and cliffs all around here. So it does interesting things with the temperature of the air, the high elevations, the low elevations coming together, and storms can come out of nowhere. These were experienced fishermen. And as you heard in the text, they were frightened. They thought they were going to die. This was obviously one of the worst storms that they had experienced. So I wanted you to be able to picture this, where it's going on. There's one more thing by way of background that you need to understand for this story to come alive. You have to understand how ancient people thought about the sea. How ancient people thought about large bodies of water. They were terrified of them. Uh, not only were they afraid because for the same reasons we'd be afraid, you know, a storm, you can drown, and, you know, they didn't swim recreationally, so not that many folks could swim in, in ancient times. But they were afraid because in their mindset, the sea was the place where scary things come from. The, the, the sea was a metaphor in, in biblical literature and even non-biblical literature of that time. The sea was sort of the root of evil, so even in our text, even in our scripture, in, in the, the book of Daniel, for example, you see the monsters, you know, the, the, probably in this case in Daniel, it's symbolic, but the monsters come from where? They come from the depths, they come from the sea. Even think about in Genesis chapter 1, when, when God creates the world, it says the Spirit of God was hovering above the depths, above the water, and then he begins bringing order to chaos. You see, the depths, the water, in the mind of the ancient person is where bad things happen, where bad things come from. However, these Jewish fishermen who knew their Old Testament would also know that, yes, the sea is scary, but God is above the ocean. God is above the waters. Think about all the stories in their mindset. Noah and the ark. He delivers his people from the waters. Think about Moses being delivered in the basket across the Nile. Uh, think about Jonah being delivered from the sea, from the ocean, by being swallowed. See, God is the one that delivers his people from the waters. That should have been in their mind. So here's the big idea, the ancient idea of the sea. Yes, it's the place of evil. It's their symbolic of their greatest fear. But there's one and only one who's in control, God. So that's the mindset that Jesus is setting them in for this lab, right? For They're about to experience. So let's read about the storm, which is when the story really takes off. Verse 37. There arose a fierce gale of wind. The waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? By the way, interesting note, the only time we hear about Jesus sleeping is in a storm. Now, it wasn't the only time he slept, right? He was fully human, fully God, but also fully human. He would have slept like a normal human being. Uh, during his, his time on earth. However, this is the only time that the gospel writer goes out of his way to say Jesus was asleep, like he was sleeping. You see the irony in this. 
This is not accidental. I don't think it was just he's tired from a long day of ministry. I mean, he was tired. But I think there's some intentionality here to how Jesus is postured, how Jesus is positioned. He's asleep while the storm is raging. And we'll talk about why that might have been in a little bit, but I didn't want you to miss that. Now, the first question from our text pops up right here in the verses that I just read. And it's a question from the disciples to their master, to Jesus. Do you not care? Do you not care that we're dying? I mean, here you are sleeping. Here you are resting. And, and we're over here like this, fighting for our lives. Do you not care? You obviously don't. Surely you could have roused yourself. How is it possible that you've been asleep? The boat's been rocking up and down. We've been calling. We've been shouting. We've been praying out to our God to save us. And you're the only person here that's not helping out. Do you not care? Now, before we judge the disciples too much, I want to say to you, isn't this the same question that we ask God? And I'll even take it another step further and say this is the question we must ask God. If we hope to relate to this holy being, this this other, this creator, this transcendent being, if we hope to have any kind of personal relationship with God, we must ask this question of our creator. Do you care about me? Do you even know me? Do you notice me? Do you see my storm? Do you see what's going on in my life? Do you see that I am slowly perishing? Like my body is slowly disintegrating and I don't know if I've got 20 years left, 30 years, 50 years, one week. I'm dying. Do you care, God? If you in this room have never asked this question of God, you need to. Your relationship with God can never get started. Like there, there can never be anything personal about it if you don't engage with your creator this question. Do you see me? Do you know me? Do you care about me? And then allow him to fill in the open space that your question leaves. This is the fundamental human question in terms of our relationship to God. Of course the disciples asked this. We would... Now, the sea is their greatest fear, so you have to understand this. This is the context of Jesus inviting them into the place of their fear. This is Jesus saying, I'm going to purposely invite you to go into the place that you're most afraid to go, the sea and a storm, and you're completely out of control and you can't do anything about it. And in those places of our lives, all of us say, God, where are you? Do you not care? And we should. We should ask that question. Now, I want to keep going. We're going to get to the second question. Pick it up in verse 39. He got up, he rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. Now, before we get to the question, let me pause here in 39. Uh, the, the way that, that Mark records Jesus' verbatim words is fascinating. In fact, this same account appears in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke. It's only in Mark that we get his exact words, and they're interesting. It's just two verbs. And so in Greek, it's just literally two words that he says, and he talks to the wind and the waves like they're children right? He does. The first word he literally says is just quiet, silence. 
I remember being in the back seat, you know, my dad's driving and my brother and I were causing a ruckus, you know, and his hand just kind of slams down on my knee in the back. He says, be quiet. You know, it's just like, whoa, it gets your attention. This is how Jesus was talking to the, the wind and the sea. The second verb is an interesting one. It means the same thing, but the word picture, it literally says, be muzzled. So you picture a wild animal that you're taming right? You put a muzzle over its mouth and for, for all it wants to, it can't. You know, it's not a matter of, of it wanting to obey you. It literally it, it disobey you. It can't disobey you. It's muzzled. And so this is the power. This is the authority. Incidentally, it's the exact same words Jesus used earlier when he told a demon not to speak. Now, connect the dots in your head. Remember, Ancient people symbolized the sea as the place of evil, right? The, the, the place of the bad things. Jesus is speaking over evil. It's not just nature he's in control of. It's the spiritual realm as well. He's using this, the language of exorcism. It's very, very interesting. Now, not only did the wind stop, you know, that's amazing in and of itself, but I guess you could think, well, perhaps it was coincidental because sometimes storms start quickly and they end quickly. But the sea was perfectly calm. Did you pick that up at the end there of verse 39? So literally, this sea goes from like flooding over the sides of the, these boats to glass in an instant, right? They, they literally go from like, I'm, I'm throwing up and I think I'm going to die to anybody want to water ski? Because <laughs> they could have. I guess this is kind of a sea that it suddenly was. Now, there's, there's, that can't happen by chance. This is the power of God at work. Jesus is exerting his power. What does that mean about his identity? Remember, there's only one that's in control of the sea. We'll come back to that in a minute. Now, I want to get to this second question. Now, the disciples have asked Jesus a question. Do you not care that, that we're perishing? Jesus is now going to ask them a question. It's actually two questions, but I think he's going after the same idea with both. Verse 40, and he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Why are you afraid? Jesus asks such great questions. Now think about this for a minute. He's omnipotent. We've already seen earlier in the passage, he reads people's minds, you know, like he's, you know, what, what, why are you thinking this? And the people are like, what do you mean why are you thinking? How did you know what I was thinking? He's omnipotent. He knows the answer to every question he asks. Why does Jesus bother to ever ask questions? not for him it's for us it's the people he's asking and by the way i'd invite you to pay attention when we finish the rest of this book of mark over the next four five six months you'll hear question after question that jesus asks people and every single time these questions go deep you could do a whole study on mark just by looking at the questions of jesus It'd be fascinating you know he asks this great question why are you afraid now here's what i love about questions um I went to a workshop recently and they were talking about, you know, good teaching is question asking. And I was real convicted because I'm a preacher. <laughs> Preachers don't ask a lot of questions. They, we feel like, we feel this pressure that our job is to give an answer. And you know what I realized when I was in this workshop? I realized I am not y'all's teacher. I mean, I kind of knew that. I have it in my title, though, teaching pastor, and sometimes I feel this pressure that I've got to teach you well. I've got to go study and get some answers and dig into the Greek and Hebrew and so I can come and give some answers to you all. And, and, and I want to study it. I want to be diligent. I want to give you the best that I have in me according to the, the, the gifts that God has given me and this experience and the diligence of studying his word. But the Holy Spirit is your teacher. 
God is your teacher. He uses this vessel, this vehicle to speak to you. And sometimes maybe the best gift I could give to you is a good question rooted in the word of God. And so this morning, that's why this sermon is structured around these questions. There's a question that you must ask God, do you care? But there's a question that God would ask you, why are you afraid? And I don't want to answer that question for you this morning. I want to tease some things out. I want to invite you to get a little introspective. Why are you afraid? Now, I've got to imagine the disciples thought that was a silly question. What do you mean? Like, Well, I know you were sleeping, so you, you must have missed the storm. Like, I've been fishing for 35 years, and I've never seen a storm like this. What do you mean? Do you see the water that's still in the boat? Like, we still have some work to do to bail this out. Did you hear the wind? We were on our way down. What do you mean? Why are you afraid? What a silly question that is. See, that's the surface level question or surface level answer. And for some of you, when I ask you this morning from God's word, I think Jesus would ask you this. Why are you afraid? What do you mean? I am one phone call away from a a, a serious medical issue of news about my child. We have this election, oh, by the way, that's coming up on Tuesday. What's going to happen with that? I don't know. We live in an insecure society. Have you read the news lately? We're not insulated from harm. We're not insulated from fear. Have you, have you looked at my bank account? Have you looked at how much debt that I have? Do you know what's going on with my rebellious child? What do you mean, God? Why am I afraid? Are you kidding? What a silly question. I want to invite you to go deeper. I think the disciples needed to go deeper. Where do our fears come from? Let me take you down this path for a few minutes. Our fear goes back to the very beginning. I don't want to answer this question for you, why are you afraid, but I I want to try to help your mind go a little bit deeper. The first time fear is ever mentioned in Scripture, Genesis 3, verse 10. Here's the context. Adam and Eve had just sinned. First time, human beings had sinned, right? Immediately, his instinct, their instinct, both of them, is to cover themselves and hide from God. And so God finds Adam, and this is what Adam says in in Genesis 3.10. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. First time anyone ever experienced fear. First time the the motion of fear was ever, ever echoed around this creation. When sin entered the human existence, fear was right there with it. Sin and fear go hand in hand. They're married together. Now, I'm not saying that, hey, every fear that you have traces back to your own personal sin, but follow me down this track for just a minute. Adam and Eve had never been alone before, right? In other words, God's presence was with them. And when they sinned, they purposely chose to step away from his complete embrace, and they felt vulnerable immediately because they were no longer in perfect relational communion with their creator, with their father. And they felt insecure like that. They covered themselves. They felt the need to hide. They felt the need to protect. They felt fear. I had an experience just a few weeks ago that illustrated this point. We were teaching our youngest daughter how to ride a bike. And uh, many of you in this room have done this. There's a lot of uh, joy. It's kind of a big moment in the kid's life, but I kind of forgot how exhausting it is, right? Because I'm jogging with her. I've got to keep up, and I'm not really that great in shape. And I'm like winded. I'm like, I'm ready for her to get this. But every time I would let go, so I had one hand up here on the handlebar and one hand back here behind her on the, on the back seat. Every time I would let go, she would immediately call out, Daddy, don't. I'm afraid. And more often than not, when she got afraid, she would topple. 
So literally, as a parent, you know how this is. As long as your child feels the safety that you're in control, that she's in your embrace, man, I mean, the world is their oyster, right? She's like, la, 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 riding your bike like a butterfly. You know, as soon as I let go, it's like, no, terror, I'm going to die. This is how it works. When we have high control, we have low fear. But when we have low fear, or low control, we have high fear. Uh, some of you know Meredith Kinder. He's our pastor of counseling, and he offices out of the Brentwood area. But by the way, that's a, a ministry that's available to you and open to you as our counseling ministry for those of you that call fellowship your home. And I was talking to Meredith about this idea of fear and control, and he was saying, that's exactly how it works. We spend our lives trying to control our environment, just like Adam and Eve, to reduce our fear. So they made fig leaves to cover themselves, and they hid from God in order to feel more secure. Isn't that silly that they could hear, uh, hide from God? But listen to some of the fig leaves that we make. Here are all the different ways that we try to control our environment to reduce our fear. We stockpile money and assets. By the way, this list I'm reading to you is not sinful, okay? We stockpile, not necessarily. We stockpile money and assets. Why? Fear. We move into safe towns and neighborhoods and schools. We lock our doors. Good practice, but if you think about it, we lock our doors because of fear. We buy safe vehicles. We eat organic foods and grass-fed animals. And I said, well, some of, they, some of them do, not me. <laughs> Sorry. They, how about this relevant one? We vote for officials that we believe will make us the most safe or provide us with the most security or the most benefits for us, for our children, and our grandchildren. Right? Why? Fear. Now, like I said, none of these are sinful, but I want you to see so much of what you do is a strategy to protect yourself in a fallen, broken world that's, that's just dominated by sin. It's all around you. We're trying to control our environment. The truth is, control is actually an illusion. You can't keep yourself from harm. Doesn't matter what you do. You can't. The sooner you realize that control is an illusion, the sooner you can surrender control, which is actually what trust is. Going back to my pizza example, I wanted to control those toppings, right? The sooner I trusted the guy making the pizza, the sooner I said, you do your thing. That's what trust is. Now, here's the thing about self-protective strategies. Many of them are not sinful. Some of them are. Let me read you another list. Here's some other fig leaves that we make that are honestly sinful. We sometimes lie. All of us do this. We do, even subtly. We sometimes lie to avoid embarrassment or potential consequences, even something small. You know, like your, your boss catches you in the hallway. He's like, did you get my email I sent you? Well, you hadn't gotten the email. You, you, you know, you're, you're backed up in your email. But instead of saying, oh, no, I'm backed up on my email because I've been lazy, instead of saying that, what you say is, oh, yeah, I'll be responding later today. And then you hide yourself in your office and you look it up real quick and write back. <laughs> All right? And please tell me I'm not the only one that's ever done that. Um, so we lie to avoid embarrassment or consequences. We judge, discriminate, or lash out against people who are different than us. It's just part of who we are. We, we do this. We use whatever strengths and talents we have to manipulate other people to give us what we think we need to feel safe. How about this one? This one's very subtle. We tend to stay emotionally distant and we hide our deepest selves from the people who need us the most. We do this in order to avoid being harmed. Now, these are all sinful, self-protective 
strategies. And I could go on and on and on. In fact, I'd say most of our sin is actually an effort to protect ourselves from what we perceive to be our you know, vulnerability, insecurity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, Jesus' questions to the disciples is brilliant. It's penetrating. Why are you afraid? It goes back to God's question of Adam in the garden when he says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? You see, the disciples, I mean, sorry, Adam and Eve knew they were naked, but they never felt naked. They never felt insecure until they stepped away from relational connection to the Father. Why are you afraid? Jesus asked. Now, notice there's one person in this story who's not at all afraid. Why would Jesus not be afraid? Well, in his godness, he's the one controlling the storm. But even in his humanity, fully man, he's not afraid. He's sleeping, like he's lights out. How could he do that? How could he sleep? I think it's because he had no sin. Therefore, he never stepped away from full embrace of his father, from protective care. See, my daughter was not afraid when she was in my arms. Well, this creates this contrast between Jesus and the disciples, and it creates a question for us this morning. Why are you afraid? Why do you feel vulnerable and insecure? And if your mind just goes to the circumstances, well, it's my money, it's my health, it's my kids, it's the election, I want you to go deeper and say, okay, yeah, that stuff's there. But why do you feel so vulnerable? Why do you feel so insecure? Could it be, I can't answer this question for you, could it be that there's some relational tension or distance between you and your creator? Could it be that you're not feeling his embrace? Could it be that there's a lack of trust? Could it be? We got to get to 41 before I'm out of time. They, the disciples, became very much afraid. They said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him. Now, this is the irony about this passage. They were scared of the storm. Now, they're terrified of Jesus. Now, why were they suddenly terrified of this man that they'd been walking around with and eating and fellowshipping with for probably a year at this point in time? Is they knew he had power, but they didn't know he was power. Remember their theology. There's only one that can control the sea is God, sovereign. How is it that this person that we've seen eat food, that we've laughed with, that we've cried with, how is, can this person be God? Like, isn't that a scary thought if you suddenly realize this friend that you've known for a year, like, he's actually not a, I mean, he's, he's, he's more than just a person. He's God? I mean, that would just scare the pants off me. I, they, they were fear, and not all their fear was bad, by the way, right? We fear God in some good ways. But here's the big idea. They're, they realize that Jesus doesn't just have power. He is power. And suddenly they realize they're in a boat with someone that could snap a finger and turn them into dust if he so desired to. And so this is the laboratory for them. Do they trust this one that he's there for their benefit? that he loves them, that he does care, that he's not going to turn them to dust next time they do something dumb, which they will, a lot of dumb things to come, uh, and we do too. So we get this third and final question, which is exactly the right question. I want to start wrapping up with this question. Who is this? Who is this? Now, you know the surface-level answer, and it's not shallow, it's deep, but it's still surface for today's context. The surface-level answer is, I went to Sunday school, he's fully God, fully man, Savior of the world, you died on the cross for my sins, yada, yada. You know that answer, most of you. 
Most of you believe that, but here's the question. What do you really believe to be true about this God that we've been singing about, about this man Jesus? What do you actually believe to be true about him? I think in order to trust him, you have to believe three things fundamentally about God, and you have to be all in, not just barely with your mind. You gotta be all in on these three truths. Number one, God is powerful. Number two, God is loving. And number three, God is present. I think you have to believe all those three things. Because if you don't believe he's powerful, then he can't help you even if he wants to. If you don't believe he's loving, then he might crush you because he doesn't care. And if you don't believe he's present, then he's just sleeping somewhere. He's not aware of what's going on with you. You've got to know he's powerful, he's good, he's present. The disciples didn't believe any of these three things yet. Not fully, right? They were shocked by his power. They questioned his love and they saw him sleeping and it begged the question, you're not with us. You're sleeping. Now, we know some things about Jesus that they didn't know at this point in time. We know that Jesus has not yet fully emphatically answered their question, do you not care about us? But we know that he will at the end of his life. We know that he will hang on that cross for them. And we know that fundamentally what, what that death, that sacrifice will speak to them and to all who would believe is this. Jesus said this, essentially, on the cross. Men and women, you thought that because I was resting while you were perishing, you thought that I didn't care. Now you see that my plan all along was that I would perish so that you can rest. Jesus is offering an exchange. He's saying, you can sleep. You can rest. You can have peace without fear because I'm going to be the one that's going to walk into the eye of that storm, which our greatest fear for all of us is ultimately death. And I'm going to walk in the middle of that hurricane alone so that you can sleep, so that you can rest, so that you don't have to do it. You see, I will shield you. I will take you under my wing and I will die for you so that you don't have to work for your salvation, so that you don't have to perish on behalf of your sin. This is our God. And so Jesus, throughout the course of his life, embodies perfect power, perfect love, perfect presence. In fact, his title is Emmanuel, God with us. It's the whole reason that God became incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ is to show he is with us. He's power, he is love, he is full presence. You put those three things together and you start realizing, I think maybe I could trust a God like that. You won't trust him apart from Christ. You never will. Until you see how he bled for you until you see how he went into the storm for you, until you really deep down believe that he was the embodiment of power and love and presence. That's the God that you can trust and he's perfectly figured, pictured in this person of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Y'all, it is glorious to be a Christian, to be able to recognize our God in the face of this incredible man, Jesus Christ. So this is how we're going to close our service is we want to invite you into a little bit of time of response because this is how it works to be taught not by a preacher but by the Holy Spirit. You see, you hear the words of God but the Spirit is speaking to you through the Word of God. The same Spirit that authored the text teaches it to you, illuminates it to you, 
convicts you, challenges you, pushes you, comforts you. And I can't do all that. Only the Spirit can do all that. And He is at work in you, in this room, even now. So what do we do? We respond to that. And sometimes you go and respond at home different ways. Today, we're going to invite you to respond right here. Now, not all of you will do this. Not all of you can do this. But but here's how we're going to do it. We're going to have a song that's being played. And some of you notice this if you're sitting out front. We now have some kneeling benches up here. And uh, by the way, I'm so grateful to Lisa Venable. She, she put the, the covers on these and, and Perot built these for them. I mean, literally from our bodies are gifts to us. Now, these are going to be a permanent fixture in this place. And, and we're not going to, you know, do any formal liturgy of everyone kneeling and all those kinds of things. That's not who we are. But we're going to make these available to you today and, and any Sunday to come down and just kneel. Now, why would you do that? Do you have to come forward for God to do anything in your heart? Absolutely not. But sometimes it helps for your body to respond as well as your mind, as well as your uh, motives, as well as your conviction. And so for some of you this morning, you just need to pray. You just want to pray. You need to talk to God about your fear. I know there's a lot of fear in the room because you're human beings. There's a lot of fear right here. And so I'm going to invite you when this song comes, whoever wants to come during this song, it's about a five, six minute song, just come down and just kneel right here and pray. Now, if you would like someone to pray with you, we're going to have two prayer intercessors uh, that are going to be down up here in front. In fact, it'll be Ray and Sandy. And if you don't know them, they're wonderful, loving people. And they're not going to judge you. They're just going to pray with you. And they're going to be over to to your left, my right, kind of in this alcove over here. So if you want someone to pray for you, even if you you don't even know what to say, just say, I just need prayer. Ray and Sandy would love to pray with you, pray for you. And then finally, if you want to just stay in your seat, that's fine. You can sing the words to this song. You can just allow these words to be sung over you. Spend some time with God. Allow the Spirit to teach you, to ask you these questions so that then you can respond. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for loving us enough to be with us. We thank you that Jesus is in his person, present with us through the Spirit, that he is powerful enough to control any storm, And that he loves us enough that when we beg that question of him, do you actually care? He responds. He shows us. He takes us back to that moment on the cross where he proved once and for all how much he cares about his creation. And so God, for these men and women that are bringing all kinds of fears into this room, I pray that they would find refuge in you. And I pray, Spirit, that as you do your work in these minds and do your work in these hearts that they would come to know a God who is all-powerful and all-loving and very present with them. And I thank you for this time that we have now, Father, and I pray that we would just feel free to use this space and use this room and center in on you. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.